Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for what we've seen tonight. Uh, Thank you for the great reminder that Jesus washes our sins away and that we have new life in him. Uh, Father, I pray that you continue to help us listen to your word as it's now preached. Use me in my weakness to preach it uh, clearly and faithfully and give us all hearts to receive it uh, by faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What do you think God's most common command is in the Bible? Uh, Perhaps it's love your neighbour, maybe fear God, uh, have no other gods before me. Do you think it's any of those? No one's willing to engage because you'd be wrong if you said so. Um, The actual answer is do not be afraid. This is by far the most common command and occurs over 300 times throughout the Bible in sort of different forms. Do not be afraid. Uh, What does this tell us? Well, I think it tells us that God is aware how much of this world terrifies us. God knows how easily we can be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and worry, and so he speaks into it. And I suspect there are a number of you here tonight who are currently experiencing a sense of fear or worry or anxiety. And I can only imagine that you've heard people say to you on a number of occasions, don't worry, it'll be right, don't be afraid. Uh, These words are often said so casually, aren't they? In fact, sometimes we say these words with the hope that the person will just stop bothering us. Uh, Recently, we got four chickens uh, at our house. Um, There is a link here, don't worry. Uh, And most nights, I've been dealing with uh, the fear of my children that something will happen to these new chickens. Uh, Dad, will the chickens be okay tonight? It's too cold outside. It's too hot outside. What if a fox gets these chooks? And what's my response? Well, girls, you don't need to be afraid. It'll be all right. I'm sure they'll be fine. Now, when I say those words, it's usually in a moment where I'm tired. I'm in my socks. I don't really want to go outside. And so, as you can imagine, much of what lies behind my words is actually self-interest more than a genuine concern for their fears. When God tells us not to be afraid, the good news is that his words are nothing like my words. God doesn't tell us not to be afraid just to get us off, our ba- off his back because he's too busy or just simply done listening to us. When we hear God telling us not to be afraid, we can be confident that he cares about us and our fears and that his words actually carry weight. And I think that's what we see in our passage tonight. In Deuteronomy 20, God is telling Israel why they should not be afraid when they come face to face with the enemy in the promised land. God is calling them to have faith amidst their fear. Why? Well, for the three reasons I've listed in your outline, because God is present with them in the battle, he's powerful in the fight, and he will prevail in the end. So what we'll do is consider how uh, these three points speak into Israel's fear of the battle ahead and how they speak into the fears that we carry today as Christians. So first, 
God is present in the battle. Israel is told not to be afraid because God is present. Uh, When life becomes scary and overwhelming, you want to know that you're not on your own. Uh, We feel this when we walk back to our cars late at night in the dark. It's kind of nice to know someone's walking with us, not following us. Uh, When our kids start their first day of school, they hold their mum or their dad's hand extra tight when they walk through those gates. When Israel is facing down uh, her enemies in the Promised Land, and they see a kind of harrowing array of horses, chariots, and an army so much greater than theirs, verse 1, they need to know that God is holding their hand extra tight and that he's going in with them. You see that in verse 1. Do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Moses is saying to Israel, yes, these enemies are going to be scary. You'll want to run and hide, but you don't have to because God is with you in this battle. The same God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt and then destroyed the armies of Pharaoh, he's not about to abandon you now. He's with you. Now, you might like to think that the battlefield is an odd place to listen to a sermon. Um, Won't people be distracted by their fear and anxiety and growing panic? Uh, But actually, that's the very moment when God wants Israel to hear his word. And so he gets them to stop and listen to a sermon by a priest. You see that in verse 2 before they engage in battle. When you're about to go into battle, verse 2, the priest shall come forward and address the army. Here comes the sermon. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Uh, I remember when I first moved to Melbourne back in 2003 and I joined a soccer club. Uh, I was never very good at soccer and uh, for a long time I didn't quite understand the rules either. Um, And on one Saturday during a game I was trying to tackle a ball off some guy on the other team and apparently I tripped him up in the process. Now he was very upset about this. He jumped up said, what was all that about? And then pushed me in the chest. Now, I was even scrawnier back then than I am now, so I went flying. It was pretty scary stuff. But just at that moment, an older, stronger, taller, tougher player on my team ran over to where I was. And he grabbed this guy by the shirt front And he picked him up and said, you mess with him, you mess with me, and threw him to the side. It was glorious. (laughs) You see, it's a wonderful feeling to know a guy like that has your back when the heat comes. God is reassuring Israel, don't fear the enemy. As they mess with you, They mess with me. See, Israel was like me on the soccer field, puny and scrawny compared to the other players in the nations around them. But God cares about this scrawny nation. 
They belong to him. He made a covenant with them. He will be with them and he will fight for them. You see, as Christians, we have that great promise too. Through faith in Jesus, God now lives within us by his spirit. He is present with weak and scrawny people like us. And it's because of this great truth that Paul can tell the Philippian believers not to get anxious. Why? Well, the reason's actually said at the end of verse 5, which is really supposed to go with verse 6. Because the Lord is near and ready to help us in all our needs. See, who do you go to when you are fearful or anxious or worried? Uh, I suspect uh, one of the first ports of call for many of us is to seek out a trusted family friend or family member. And I actually think that's good and right. Uh, this passage reminds us that as we battle side, uh, that we battle side by side as God's people, this is an individual warfare. But actually, first and foremost, this passage is reminding us that we must draw our strength and encouragement primarily from the presence of God with us, even before we draw strength from our brothers and sisters. You see, friends are good in times of trial but they are finite. They need sleep. They can't always pop over. They get distracted. They don't always understand our problems. And sometimes, well, maybe often, they fail to meet our expectations. You see, if we put all our friends in the eggs, all our egg, eggs in the friends basket, we may well be setting ourselves up for disappointment. But actually, Jesus never fails us. We're told he'll never leave us nor forsake us, with us to the end of the age. Jesus is almighty. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't get distracted. He understands our struggles, and he is always ready to help us when we need it. See, listen to this great promise in Hebrews 4, verse 16. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. For we do not have, verse 15 starting, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus gets our struggles and fears. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus has our back. He is God with us in the fight. He will help us endure. He will give us wisdom in the complexity of the, the issue. The, the question is not whether grace and mercy are on offer in our time of fear and worry. The question is whether or not we're asking for it. God is present in the battle. But second, God is powerful in the fight. That's the second reason Israel was told not to be afraid. See, Israel will not drive out the enemy nations because of her own strength or her own smarts, but simply because of God's power. God will be the one who picks up that enemy by the scruff of the neck and throws them out of that land like a rag doll. And that's what you actually see in verses 5 to 9. It's a fantastic little section of this chapter. It's all about God's power, not Israel's strength. 
See, after the priests have given their sermon to the troops on the front line, it's the officer's turn to speak to the army lining up for battle. Now, imagine you were a commanding officer. You've got two minutes to make a speech before the troops uh, as they get ready for battle. What are you going to say? Well, in my mind, I'd be thinking, well, I've got to say something inspiring enough that will guarantee these men don't freak out and run for the hills. Because in my mind, it's simple. More fighters, more chance of winning. And this is actually what you see in the movie Braveheart. Uh, the hero, William Wallace, has to give a speech that will stop this kind of ragtag army of Scots running in fear from the powerful English army that is lined up against them. And so when William Wallace like, rides first up into the, into the battlefield and he, he sort of turns and faces all the Scots, he asks them if they're going to stay and fight. And what's their response? The English are too many. We'll run and we'll live. And you see, what you get next is William Wallace's famous freedom speech. It's very inspiring. The Scots get all revved up, and they decide not to run, but to stay and fight. See, Wallace needs those Scottish fighters, so he implores them to stay. But what's shocking about the pre-battle speech of the Israelite officers is that the very opposite thing is happening. See, God doesn't need Israel's fighters, so he implores many of them to just go. Did you notice all the different outs that God gives them in verse 5 and following? Just look at verse 5 there for a second. The officers shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. What an awesome housewarming gift. You don't have to fight in battle. And the same thing is kind of coming out in verses 6 and 7, isn't it? If you've just planted a vineyard, you're free to go. Go and enjoy its fruit. If you've just got engaged, you're free to go. You go and enjoy your new wife. And now you might be thinking at this point, well, there could be a lot of troops kind of heading home. But it gets even more shocking, doesn't it? Look at what the officers say next in verse 8. Then the officers shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. You mean to tell me that God allowed all those who were scared of the fight to go? Well, yes, that's what the passage says. They could leave too. God doesn't need them to win. And he actually doesn't uh, want their fear spreading to other soldiers like a bad cold either. God wants to protect the faith of the remaining soldiers. But I think God also wants to show the faint-hearted soldiers that do leave that trusting God makes sense. You see, God will win with only a few soldiers. So in the next battle, faint-hearted soldiers, it's worth actually remembering that and, in faith, joining in the next fight. And see, I think that's true today. Sometimes the best thing for a faint-hearted believer is to see the way God powerfully fights and provides for others who are willing to take bold steps of faith. 
I'll give you an example. I remember when I first came to Melbourne, uh, not only did I join a soccer club, but I joined the Christian Union at La Trobe uh, University, which I believe a whole contingent of people here are from. Um, but one of my biggest fears coming from Bort, my hometown, was that kind of fear that Jamie tapped into, actually, the fear of kind of sharing your faith, people knowing that you and your family went to church. And so when I joined the Christian Union at La Trobe, I found it a terrifying thing that so many of these students in the club were going into the common space, the Agora, at lunchtime and just talking to strangers about God. And so for, I don't know, maybe a few months, half a year, I kind of kept my head low. I sat on the sidelines. I was a bit like one of the faint-hearted soldiers. Because I couldn't see how I would survive that experience. But in time, I decided to give it a go myself, to actually share Jesus with some people in the Agora at lunchtime. And it wasn't because I suddenly had this ripper uh, gospel explanation ready to go, or that I suddenly knew all the answers. No, it was simply because I kept witnessing how God was faithfully helping other Christian students in their weakness, in their fumbling answers, and they weren't being destroyed in the process. See, from what I saw, they were actually being encouraged and their faith was kind of growing. You see, these few Israelites fighting in faith would have been a great testimony, I think, to God's power to their brothers and sisters on the sidelines. Israel doesn't need a huge army in their battle against the enemy. They just need God. He's powerful in the fight. And you see this in the book of Judges when Israel is living in the promised land and they're still battling with some of the nations there. Uh, God tells Gideon, the leader of Israel's uh, people at the time, and the commander of the army, he tells Gideon to reduce the number of fighting men uh, who are fighting against the Midianites, Midianites from uh, 32,000, reduce it from that to 300. Now, why does God do this? Well, it's so that he can show them that he wins the battle through his strength, not their strength. Judges 7.2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. God is powerful in the fight. And I actually think that uh, idea lies behind that last section of the chapter in verses 19 to 20. Because God is powerful in the fight, Israel doesn't need to decimate the land in order to achieve victory. See, so just jump down to the bottom of the, the text there for a moment, in verses 19 and 20 in your Bibles. Uh, when you lay, lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees, and use them to build siege works, until the city at war with you falls. Uh, in ancient uh, warfare, it was common practice to completely destroy the land surrounding the enemy city. Uh, the trees were all locked down to build siege ramps and other weapons of war. Uh, all the olive groves, uh, crops, fruit trees, vineyards were often cut down to devastate the enemy's source of food. Uh, land suffers in a time of war. 
And actually, that's been true throughout the ages. Uh, my uncle, who fought in Vietnam, will tell you about the devastation of land and wildlife he saw when he was fighting over there. The herbicide, Agent Orange, wreaked havoc on the environment and its people. But what, is God, what God is saying to Israel here is that you don't have to do that. I'm giving you this land as a gift, and I don't want you to wreck my gift in the process of getting it. You don't have to do what those other nations do. You don't need to decimate everything in the environment to win. Just take enough wood to build a siege ramp or two uh, and take it from trees that don't bear fruit and don't touch the rest. Have faith in me and in my power. See, often we look at our battles and simply think, I can't do this. I can't win against this addiction. I can't take my loneliness much longer. I can't, take, I can't cope under the stress of my work. The question is not what you can do, what I can do, but what God can do. And this passage is telling us that he can do far more than we can imagine. God is powerful to keep you going. He will help you make progress in fighting an addiction. He will keep you and sustain you in your loneliness and stress. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. See, what does Israel need to remember when fearful of the battles ahead? God is present. God is powerful. And finally, God will prevail. I suspect many of us here know the fear of failure. This fear can be so crippling uh, that it stops us from doing things that we actually really want to do sometimes. Uh, we avoid asking that girl out because we just fear failure, rejection. We avoid joining Parkrun because we fear that we won't get 100 metres without needing to call an ambulance. Current fear of mine. Uh, fear stops us in our tracks. Fear can even stop us from obeying God. And that's why it's a problem. And this was certainly the risk for Israel. If fear, not faith, wins the day, well, Israel would just repeat uh, the mistake of the previous generation who was barred from entering the promised land. But God is saying to Israel here, don't fear failure, have faith in my success. I will give you victory and I'll bring judgment on your enemies. Uh, and we can see this promise of victory given uh, in verse 4. There Moses says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Uh, the promise is alluded to again in verses 13 and 16 where Moses assures Israel the enemy will be delivered into your hands. Good news for God's people, bad news for for God's enemies. And in fact, the rest of the chapter kind of paints a picture of the enemy destruction. Uh, you get a taste of it in what Israel's told to do with the nations outside the promised land. Verses 10 to 15 tell us that if push comes to shove and Israel needs to go to war against these peoples, uh, they must first offer peace, verse 10. If that is accepted, then all the peoples are to be put to forced labor in Israel. But if peace is refused, Israel is to lay siege to the city, the men are to be put to death, and everyone else is taken as captives. 
But the picture of destruction only intensifies when we read of what must happen to the nations in the actual promised land, which are the nations up on the screen there. Israel is told not to leave alive anything that breathes, verse 16. Verse 17, completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. See, the message of the second half of Deuteronomy is clear. God will prevail. Good news for God's people, bad news for God's enemies. Now, God's command to destroy the Canaanites is confronting even for Christians who have been in church for many years. Uh, We've seen it touched on already in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It also speaks about this law. And I'd actually encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon I preached on on Deuteronomy 7 uh, for a broader discussion of this topic. Uh, But tonight I just want to focus in on the reason for judgment that God gives in verse 18. Just read it with me. So he's just told them to destroy these nations in the promised land. And then he says, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. See, God wants his people to be protected from his judgment. God doesn't play favourites. Anyone who rebels against him and, and sins pays the price. Israel is being told, if you act like a Canaanite, God will treat you like a Canaanite. You step into the enemy camp and you become God's enemy. Now that sounds kind of harsh, but actually it's a merciful warning to Israel that they'd be safe as they kept trusting God. But sadly, though, it was a a warning that time and time again, Israel refused to heed. You see, Israel repeatedly stepped into the enemy camp. They follow the practices of nations around them, and God does to them what he does to the nations, picks them up by the scruff of the neck, and throws them away into exile in Babylon. Israel forgot that only those in God's camp, trusting him, will prevail. Those in the enemy camp come to judgment. And actually, that is what one Canaanite person came to realize. Not Israelite, but Canaanite. See, in the book of Joshua, which records the the conquest of Canaan, we read in chapter 2 of one Canaanite woman named Rahab. That's exactly what she looked like, by the way. (laughs) Now, Rahab saw the God of Israel for who who he was, who he is. She switched camps to follow him, worked with the Israelite spies, and was actually saved from the judgment on her Canaanite city of Jericho. And this is what she said to the Israelite spies in Joshua 2, verses 9 to 11. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know God will prevail. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. I know he's present with you. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. I know God is powerful. 
When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, Rahab came to see the glory of God's presence, his power and his ability to prevail. Even a Canaanite found salvation in the true and living God through faith in him. Actually, I think what Rahab does here is a model for all of us. Because God's word says that we're actually all in the enemy camp because of sin. And you see, Israel's biggest enemy, as it turns out, wasn't uh, what was there on the battlefield facing them, but it was actually what was inside their hearts, their sin. They showed themselves to be people who wanted to live life on their terms, not God's terms, and that's actually what puts us all in enmity with God. We want to rule our own life. We don't want God ruling. And like the total judgment that falls on Canaan, God will one day bring judgment upon the whole earth where every person is brought to account for their rejection of him. But just like Rahab, there is hope for the enemy. And that hope now comes through faith in Jesus Christ, as we saw in those baptisms. Through his sacrificial death, Jesus removes the stain of sin in our life that makes us God's enemies. And through his powerful resurrection, Jesus gives us a new and eternal life where we now know God as Father, not as Judge. As Paul says in Romans 5, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, God is telling you to switch camps and find peace with God through faith in Jesus. Jesus has prevailed over sin, death and the devil, and Jesus will bring you to a greater promised land where the fears and sufferings you know in this life will have been removed forever. God will prevail. So zooming out for a moment, this passage reminds us that in our fears and worries, God is present, God is powerful, and God will prevail. God is telling us we can have faith in him amidst our fears. And we need to know that, don't we? Because we live in a world that causes us to get worried and become anxious. In fact, I'm willing to bet that a good handful of you have actually been totally distracted through this entire sermon because you're thinking about a fear or a worry that is currently going on in your life. See, what is it for you? How would you finish this sentence? What I most fear is death, my workplace, loneliness, my family struggles, a hostile work colleague or classmate. See, so much of our life, I think, is lived in the shadow of fear, worry and stress. Uh, I was reading about a study produced out of the States on the rates of burnout 
among millennials. Now, they define millennials as people between 23 and 38. Now, I think that captures quite a chunk of you, so um, listen up. Uh, The term burnout was described as a sense of chronic physical and mental exhaustion. Over 2,000 people were surveyed, and when the study asked the question, does burnout affect your everyday life, 96% of those surveys surveyed reported yes. 96%. Now, new sites that kind of picked up this survey and research paper uh, started labelling us the burnout generation. Uh, among the top causes of burnout were people's jobs, uh, the finan- their financial situation, and their interactions with other people, uh, maybe perhaps particularly on social media. Now, maybe things are different in Australia, right? Maybe. You're reading all the others there, I see. (laughs) Maybe things are different in Australia. But you see, I suspect many of us do actually feel overwhelmed. Many of us actually go through life with fear and anxiety always there in the background at some level. So what are millennials doing to cope with this stress? Well, the research also tapped into that, and it tells us, if you can see it up there, Netflix (laughs) wins the day. Netflix and sleep, followed by exercise and alcohol. Now, I suspect that actually we can resonate with one or two things on that list hopefully not too many others. Um, But it's it's so tempting, isn't it? To escape into a gripping drama on Netflix in order to distract ourselves from the stress. It's so easy at one level to, to sleep the fears away or to exercise in order to get some of those good endorphins pumping through our system instead of the feelings of fear. We go to these things because they offer a sense of distraction and relief. But it's just temporary, isn't it? See, our fears and worries, they kind of just resurface when we've finished the Netflix series or or when we wake up from sleep or when the endorphins wear off. Well, friends, Deuteronomy 20 is reminding us that what millennials need to know, and actually what we all need to know, and what we all need most, is not Netflix. It's not even a good sleep or a gym session. What we need most is God. He's actually all we need. So if you're worried, scared, anxious, keep having faith in God. He cares about you. He's present with you. He's powerful in the fight that you're going through. And though the battle may be tough and long, as it was actually for Israel in the Promised Land, God will prevail. And he will bring an end to all your battles and fears and one day settle you safely in your eternal home 
with Jesus. And that's good news. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a genuine answer to our fears. Our Lord, we are people weak of faith. We are like that scrawny, sinful nation, Israel. Uh, so often we are people of little faith who let, the fear, who let our fears get the best of us, Lord. Please be merciful to us and grow in us a deep faith in you. Father, help us to see that you are the God who is present with us, who is powerful in what we're going through and who will prevail in the end and take us to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.